0: Thank you, Ross. I loved how he said that there are some here this morning who think they've gone too far, sinned so bad that God's grace is unavailable. But that's exactly the gospel, that we have sinned that bad. And if not for God's grace... We would never know God. We would never be in a right relationship with him. So, And then at the same time, he said, and for those who think they don't need God's grace, that they're doing pretty good, that they're living the life God has called us to live, that God would open their eyes as well. What's worse, knowing you need mercy and not knowing where to find it or thinking you don't need mercy... And so Jesus came and ministered to all. And for those who were in desperate need of mercy, the good news was good news for them. Amen? And for those who didn't think they needed mercy, the religious leaders who were supposed to be pointing people to God and their need for God's mercy, to them, they couldn't figure out why Jesus would consort with With sinners. And so we're going to look at the last group of religious leaders this morning. One by one, they've been confronting Jesus. They hate him. They hate him for his beauty, for his perfection, for his wisdom, that he's smarter than they are, that he has upstaged them publicly. That he is about to ruin their entire system of power and greed and exploitation in their pride and arrogance instead of repenting and listening to this man who can perform deeds that no one else can perform. They dig in their heels like all of us as sinners or double down. And instead of considering maybe this man has the words of eternal life, maybe he is God incarnate, they rejected his message, rejected him, rejected his deity, and now there's no more public debate. It's Wednesday of Passover week, and after this final interaction with the religious leaders, they will plot to... Arrest him in the middle of the night when nobody's watching, try him in the middle of the night, which is not in accordance with the law. So these people who say we're all about the law of God are the same people you'll find in the world that say, well, those laws don't apply right now because there's a greater need. And so the laws apply to everyone else, but they don't apply to us because as the keepers of the law, we can decide which laws apply to us, which don't, or how to interpret the law, and how to interpret it in such a way that they end up getting the things that they want. This isn't new in human history. This isn't just something that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Scribes do. This is something we're all prone to do. And so if we're paying attention this morning... We'll see a bit of ourselves in these religious leaders. What I don't want you to walk away with is a disdain for leadership. That's never turned out well historically. The rejection of leadership, things turn to anarchy, and in that void, some kind of leadership has to fill back in. And often, what replaces the leadership is worse than what was there in the first place. But God has given us ways to reform to change, to grow, to be humble, to pick out the right kind of leaders, what to look for in leaders. So I know it's a bit self-serving to say, hey, don't walk away this morning with a disdain for religious leadership. (laughs) I sit under religious leadership myself. I am not uh, my own leader. We have elders and we have mutual submission to one another, Here in the church, when I get into the pulpit to preach the Word of God, I am no different than you saying, Hey, look what I discovered about Jesus. Isn't he great? Look what I discovered about Jesus this week. It's not something I came up with, it's not something that should be attributed to my intellectual capabilities. If I'm ever teaching something that is brand new that no one's ever taught before, it's probably heresy. But there is no new heresy. It's all been done. And the greatest heresy of all is to say Jesus is not divine. That Jesus is not God. And so the title of the sermon this morning, although it seems like we're having technical difficulties, so we're going old school here. Oh, there it is. Look at that. Prideful men acting like gods rejecting the deity of Christ. This is the great irony of our passage today is men acting like gods telling jesus you can't be god you're a man and it is humorous and it's easier to see when someone else is doing it but is this not what the fallenness of humanity looks like i want to be my own god and so i downplay the divinity of christ so i can be my own god and we turn Jesus into just a really good version of a human being. We say he's our Lord and Savior. But like the religious leaders, he's, he's too good. And it makes me feel small. Well, it should. It makes me feel not as important as I really am. Well, it should. We need to be humbled. And humility doesn't come by comparing yourself to someone who's just a little bit better version of you. All that does is produce envy or jealousy. We need the God-man, Jesus Christ, to absolutely crush our overinflated self-image. This is what the religious leaders needed. This is what we're looking for in those who lead God's people. And it's not just the elders and pastors. This church is filled With leaders. We need leaders of all stripes. We need leaders in the home, leaders in marriages, leaders in our schools, in our small groups, in our ABF groups, in Sunday school. Every leader's job is to train new leaders so you train yourself out of a job. Leadership isn't something you cling on to and say, this is me, this is who I am, this is my rightful position, this defines me. And this was the problem with the religious leaders of the day. Now they're tired of public humiliation. So we start our passage in Luke chapter 20, verse 39. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. So they've been listening to Jesus embarrass the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and they're smart enough to say, well done. Any questions? No. We're good. We're good. They, they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. They were tired of public humiliation. And when you've based your entire reputation on always having the answers, being the smartest guy in the room, the final say on all things... And somebody comes along and um, puts you in your place, it either humbles you or it makes you angry. And for these men, it made them angry. They feigned humility publicly, but behind the scenes, they were angry and seething. They weren't even envy of Jesus. You don't hear them saying, man, we wish we were as smart as him or like him. Envy's ugly enough. Envy says, I wish I were you, or I wish I had what you have. Jealousy says, I wish you didn't exist. I wish there wasn't somebody like you. Because now I can't go to bed at night knowing somebody's smarter than me, or someone's better than me at what I do. Jealousy is Ugly, and it's going to lead these men to plot against the life of Jesus. God showed up in human flesh, and not only did they not recognize him as God, but they hated him, demonstrating to the world mankind's hatred for God. Nobody would say, Oh, I hate God, but you're fooling yourself. The Bible clearly teaches us that our chief problem is our hatred. Of God. Well, we, we want to love him. We want to believe in him. We want to follow him. But something in us. Makes it such that. At the same time. We hate that we don't get to be in charge. And we don't get to have the final say. And so it's been Satan's plan. his His scheming to get the people of the world. To reject Christ as God. And. Because of our sin nature, we fall into these traps. So like I said, there's lessons for us to learn today. Don't just heap all your scorn on the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. It'll be especially easy to point at the scribes. They were lawyers, and you probably have some of your own thoughts about lawyers, and I'll have a few words to say there. I don't know. Do we have any lawyers? Don't raise your hand. I'm just like rhetorically, do we have any lawyers here this morning? I remember the old joke about what's the difference between a dead snake in the road and a dead lawyer? There's skid marks in front of the snake, you know, and you're like, oh, that's horrible. But you're, you you know, you're giggling because you realize something about lawyers, you know. They always have to have the last word their, their whole life is about winning arguments, and it's pretty hard to shut that off when you leave the courtroom. Yes, you want that on your side when you're the defendant, but not so much when you just meet people in social settings. Very hard for lawyers to turn that off. Not saying it's impossible, but when you see scribes in the Bible, think lawyers. They were in charge of the law of God, copying it and interpreting it, copying it, preserving it, and interpreting the law of God. And in a theocratic society that affirms that the law of God is God's voice speaking, and we would agree with that, and you would say, man, Country Oaks is I mean, we really exalt the Word of God here. You have no idea what it really looks like to exalt the Word of God. Our our culture, compared to Judaism, they so revered the Word of God that they would never just carry the Word of God around like we do and set it down on a chair like we do. You know, oh, I can't find my Bible. We've got like 20 Bibles in the Lost and Found. That would never happen. Only certain people could handle the Scriptures, only certain people could copy the Scriptures. They had very detailed ways of copying the Scriptures to make sure not a single little error was made a whole accounting system in the margins where they would count every letter of every page. And if just one letter was off, they didn't erase or scratch out because that's the Word of God. They would not use that scroll. But they wouldn't burn it or destroy it because it's the Word of God. And so they would even save the scrolls that had scribal errors in it. You couldn't just become a scribe like, you know, what? Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think I'll be a scribe. It didn't work that way. You it was a it was a calling. You had to be intellectually gifted. You had to show um, that you were top in your class. This was the most important function in society. And so it was a high honor and privilege to be a scribe, but that can go to your head pretty easily. And that's what we're going to see this morning how did men come to this conclusion men who were charged with searching the scriptures to point people to god how could they end up pointing people away from god how could they end up using god's word to point people to themselves and glorify themselves how does that happen Matthew's version of this story records a scribe asking Jesus a question. So before we get to them saying they have no more questions, there was one scribe who came forward and asked teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. But notice the text says one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him. This wasn't a humble, honest inquiry. This was a man who already knew the answer and wanted to make sure this public figure knew the answer. It was a it was a public test. It was the lawyer's job to know the scriptures better than everyone else. It was his purpose in life, he thought, to win arguments. But it's not his purpose in life. His purpose isn't to win arguments. His purpose is to preserve the scriptures and point people to God. And if he did his job right, then people would realize their need for God's mercy. They would come to the conclusion that nobody can keep this law perfectly, it's impossible. And so these scribes failed on so many different levels. By the time we get to Jesus' time, historians, most notably Josephus, describe what the scribes were like. I got this description from R. Kent Hughes, from his commentary. One could always recognize a scribe because he wore a white linen robe with a long white fringe that reached to his feet. I had a little bit of a laugh behind the scenes as Dave was getting into his baptismal robe. And uh, the long white robe with the big sleeves. But it's appropriate in the waters of baptism. Can you imagine sanctimonious men walking around town in a white gown with fringe all the way to your feet? Looking like some kind of sacred swan of sorts This is this is out of place but they're holy men so they're wearing white and they're blameless and pure in their own eyes Now we don't want people who are prone to unrighteousness copying God's word and handling God's word and interpreting God's word The Bible lays out for us character qualifications of elders and pastors and teachers. Amen. Those are good things. But the problem is when you convince yourself of your own perfection and of your own self-righteousness. And these were the scribes. Certainly they were smarter than just about anyone else. They went to the best schools. Learned under the best teachers. They were religious power dressers. Kind of reminds me of lawyers today. Remember the series L.A. Law growing up? I'm old enough to remember. Anyone watch L.A. Law with Corbin Burnson And everyone's wearing their Armani suits. And you know, you got to look the look. Because no one wants to hire a lawyer who doesn't look good. Because you're like, if you're good, you get paid a lot. And so you got to play the role. And so the scribes justified wearing these white robes as, well, who's going to listen to a scribe who's dressed poorly? And it became customary for all the people to rise respectfully when a scribe passed by. Yikes. Drop what you're doing. Here comes a Well, how do you know it's a scribe? Well, you can't miss him. He looks like Liberace, right? He's, he's, or, or Benny Hinn. We'll use a religious figure of the day. Tradesmen busy at work were exempt because, hey, they're bottom of the barrel anyway, so we don't need them to stop what they're doing and pay their respects. They insisted on being greeted as rabbi or master or even father. They insisted on being called rabbi, great teacher, or master, or father. I mentioned first service, and now he's here this morning, so I don't want to embarrass Pastor Andy, but I didn't know he had his doctorate till like my third year at the church because it's not something he parades around. But we want learned men in the pulpit, but we don't want people walking around in three piece suits insisting on being called Dr. So-and-so. So and so. So, Pastor's okay. Pastor's all right. It's a t- title of respect just like any title that you might have in the classroom. I was Mr. Whitney, which was always weird because I thought my dad was standing behind me, but I got used to it after a while, and I learned my first year of teaching that it was a mistake to say, you guys can just call me Brent. You know, I didn't get a lot of teacher training because they would have told me, don't do that. Rule number one, you're not their friend. say, well, I feel weird about these people honoring me and dignifying me in this way. I still felt very young. I had Asian students in my class whose fathers would come in and they would bow before me because in their country of origin, teachers were held in the highest respect. And I'm like, you shouldn't be bowing to me. And they're holding the door open for me. And I'm like, go ahead. And they're like, no, you go ahead. And And I learned later that it would be absolute dishonor for them to enter a room before the teacher entered. And that is just not something we're used to, but you understand that there is a place for that because the honor is being given to the position you're holding. That if there isn't an authority figure in that classroom, all chaos is going to break loose and all the teachers are nodding. And that we need those in authority in the church, not to lord it over people, but because God is a God of order. And so, it was appropriate that people esteem these men, but not to this degree, and not for their own self-worth and self-esteem. It turns out that when somebody was throwing a party, you had to invite a couple scribes Or else it wasn't a real party. I love the description. They were considered necessary ornaments to adorn the meal. Hey, make sure you wear the white robe with the long fringe too. You can stand up and say the prayer. And they sat on the left and the right. And I could just imagine two scribes arguing over who got the left and who got the right. Just like James and John argued over who would get to sit on either side of Jesus. This is what had been modeled for them. So when they became disciples of Christ and figured he's Messiah and he's going to be the new leader of Jerusalem, somebody ought to sit on his left and his right because that's what was modeled for us. And Jesus had other plans for them. And he put a towel around his waist and washed their feet and demonstrated true Leadership, servant leadership. The teachers of the law were esteemed above the aged, even above their own parents. At synagogue, they sat in the place of ultimate honor, facing the assembly with their backs against the chest, holding the Torah. You could picture that this austere chest with the sacred scriptures contained inside, and they're the guardians of the scripture. And everyone else is bowing before the Scripture, but they get to remain seated in front of the Scripture. And often you'll see pictures uh, of the scribes in their ornate robes sitting in front of the Scriptures. And they might be holding a Scripture in their arms. And nobody else was allowed to touch the Scriptures When a teacher was teaching, they would call for the scribe to go get a certain scroll. They would go get the scroll out of, unroll it to the right place. And then they would stand there and make sure you're, if you don't teach it correctly, we are ready to pounce. And so that is the culture. And you could see where, if that's what you grew up seeing day after day, you would ascribe Glory to these men more than God had intended for them to enjoy. And you know because of the fallenness of man how quickly that can go to your head. The scribes were a lot like the elite today, and we've been making this connection with the Sadducees and Pharisees, the power brokers, the who's who of society, the Sadducees by birth, Got some of the best positions because only they could be priests and high priests and chief priests. You have the Pharisees who were more the grassroots leaders. But when we read Paul's testimony, not anyone could be a Pharisee. He said, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day as to the law, blameless. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He was trained by one of the best. Um, I think Gamaliel was his. His teacher. And the scribes were no different. You had to be incredibly gifted intellectually, able to memorize the Scripture and and just bring it to memory like that and to understand it inside and out. They attended their own elite schools. They associated with the rich and influential and powerful and you say, well, this is really terrible, but this is, this is, it's not a bad thing. It's just when sin takes over, it corrupts everything. Read about the history of our country. Read about Yale and Harvard. That These were places where the best and the brightest went to learn God's words so they could lead God's people. They, they weren't the law schools and business schools that we think of today. Everything starts out with noble intentions, good godly intentions, but sin corrupts everything. Power corrupts everything. And the danger is, once you start to believe that power won't corrupt you, now you've fallen into Satan's trap. They had tremendous power because they had the authority to interpret the law of Moses. No one else had this authority. This kind of authority. They had final say on what the law of Moses meant. Much like our Supreme Court justices today. And just to give you an idea, kind of a a parallel here. How much power lawyers have. 315 members of Congress right now are lawyers. 66 of the 100 senators are lawyers. Of course, all nine Supreme Court justices are lawyers. But they all went to Yale or Harvard. You know, there's other law schools out there. Ginsburg went to Yale. She graduated from Columbia. I don't know why. She didn't make the cut or something. I don't know. But she started out at Yale, and Kavanaugh is, is from Yale also. So not only do you have to be intelligent and, and connected to finish law school and pass the bar, but to get into these elite schools, and that's not a bad thing. We we want the smart people running things. You know? Like don't put me in charge of everything. I can't figure out the world. It's complicated. So we need lots of smart people coming together figuring things out. But it's when the smart people start to think they have everything all figured out. That's a problem. Because eventually they end up saying that they're not part of the problem, you're the problem. And if you would just do things the way we've decided is the right way to do it, that'll solve everything. And now you're starting to sound a lot like God. The, the scribes had an important role. Trying to get the, there, we go. They were to copy and preserve the Word of God, and they did a good job preserving the Word of God. Amen. Even if they often did so out of pride. God uses even our sin to accomplish great things for His name. We can trust that the Scriptures are what was originally penned. Because they were so meticulous in the way they copied the Scriptures. So, amen to that. They did that part of their job well. But they were supposed to copy the Word of God so the Word of God could be taught to people to point people to God And here they are pointing people away from God. They were also supposed to interpret the law of God. And like I said before, if they interpreted it correctly, it should point people to God's mercy. And instead, they became legalists. They said, if you keep this law perfectly, God will be pleased with you. And and look, we keep it perfectly. And look at the wonderful lives we have as proof. They were also supposed to create a just society through upholding the law. And a just society protects the weak and the vulnerable, especially widows. And we find out that the scribes exploited the weak, especially widows. Jesus said, beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses right, you're you're a widow in a society where women don't have a lot of rights, the only way to fight for your rights is to get a man to fight for you, to get a lawyer to fight for you, and he can charge pretty much whatever he wants, and since he interprets the law and all of his buddies interpret the law, right, it's all one big club, you know, they say, hey, I'll go in and fight for you, but after you go home, they're all hanging out at the same places, and we talk about Democrat and Republican not getting along, but I, I assure you in D.C., and you could probably ask the Garcias who lived there for a few years, they're all going to the same bars. They're all going to the same parties. You know, because it behooves them to keep the system exactly the way it is. That's how they make their living. That's how they get their money. That's how they get their power. And so there's nothing new under the sun. But before you want to just like throw out all lawyers, try a society without the law. That doesn't work either. And so in as much as a society humbles itself before God, then good and gifted people use their gifts to glorify God and help and serve one another. When we're at our best... That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Not get rid of all the smart, talented people. But that giftedness, you need to acknowledge it's from God. Whatever giftedness you have, whatever makes you special, whatever makes you stand out from the crowd, whatever makes it so that you can earn a paycheck doing something other people can't do, is not for you. Those gifts are for God, from God, to glorify Him And to create a society where we're in community, helping one another, glorifying God with our gifts. Paul says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Jesus wasn't here to get rid of the whole system. He's a reformer. He's a reformer like all the great reformers. It's not anarchy we're looking for. It's getting back to what God intended. In the garden, when things were perfect, what did he tell Adam and Eve? To have dominion. To have dominion. You say, like in today's vernacular, that's that's like a dirty word. Have dominion. No one's having dominion over me. He's like, well, God has commanded us to have dominion over His creation. He commanded the man to lead his wife and to be the spiritual leader of, of of the family. And so we have those calling for some kind of leaderless society. And, of course, the people calling for that are leaders of this movement. You can't have a leaderless society. The question is, it's the right kind of leadership. And the right kind of leadership acknowledges, first and foremost, God is the leader. God is the leader. He's got the remote, right? You know, it's on loan today, but it's his. He skipped a few slides here. The scribes and the other religious leaders rejected the deity of Christ. And this is really where everything comes home to roost. Who is this Jesus Christ? Is he just another good teacher? Or is he the teacher? In John chapter 10, we hear Jesus after Performing all kinds of miracles, say, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. So for which one of those good works are you going to stone me today? And they said, Not for good works. But because of blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They got it. And anyone today who says Jesus never said he was God is fooling themselves. Don't let the cults fool you. Jesus said he was God. The people wanted to kill him for it. He didn't mince words. I and the Father are one. I am and the Father, he is in me. The Son is equal with the Father. And Jesus answered them and he said, Has it not been written in your law? Right? You're you're the keepers of the law. Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. And this is a quote from a psalm. And what commentators think Jesus is referring to here is that in their arrogance, the religious leaders, especially the scribes, would say, Look, for all intent and purposes, when we're interpreting the law, we, we are acting on behalf of God, which makes us like God. And we know we're not gods, but it does say here in the Psalms, he will make us like gods. So, for all intent and purposes, because God isn't speaking from the mountain and he's not speaking from the burning bush, we are God in your life. Like the story of the man going into surgery, brain surgery, and before they put him out, he says, we should pray. And the brain surgeon says, for the next 10 hours, I'm God. Don't bother praying to him. Right? And so this was kind of the attitude of the religious leaders. Hey, we know it's blasphemy to call ourselves God, but in a sense, and look, the Scriptures even say, and the Scriptures cannot be broken... I think Jesus is, is copying their own words here and throwing it back in their face in order to make the point of, look, you guys have no problem calling yourself gods, and then somebody shows up who can do the things only God can do, and you're like, well, he's not God. That's blasphemy to call yourself equal with God. Well, you guys do it all the time, and you're not even really that good at it. And so, he says, if, if I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. You know, look at the works I'm doing and go, huh? What do we do with that? Maybe this guy's got a point. Maybe he is from God. Maybe he is the Son of God. But they weren't willing to even entertain that notion. Not because they were guarding God's um, command of him being God alone they were guarding their own position of power and authority hey if if this guy's God, then who needs us anymore? Therefore they were seeking to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. so this is the rub: can messiah can messiah be Divine? Can't he be God? And Jesus says, Okay, you've questioned me, now I'm going to question you, lawyers, keeper of the word, experts in the law. Is it not written in Psalm 110, which everyone knew at the time was a messianic psalm? It was a psalm about Messiah. David was writing about the future Messiah. And Jesus says, doesn't David himself say in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they would all nod and say, yes, we know that very well. You don't need to school us on Psalm 110. I may have just taught it yesterday in synagogue, right? And he's like, okay, well, how could David call the Messiah my Lord if everyone agrees that Messiah is David's son. If Messiah is David's son, then why would Jesus call him Lord, a title reserved for God? The Lord, Yahweh, said, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So he's making this argument from Scripture to the people that are supposed to know Scripture better than anyone else. If David's son is Messiah, and Messiah is just another human being, then how could David say this? Like, like you're following the logic, right? And there, they have no answer. It's an airtight, irrefutable, irrefutable argument. So much so that in years to follow, Most rabbis started rejecting Psalm 110 as a messianic psalm. No, David wasn't talking about Messiah. They did the same thing with Isaiah 53. Even today, rabbis will say Isaiah 53 isn't a messianic psalm. The suffering servant is Israel, not a person. It's not about Messiah. It's about the nation Israel. And look at all the horrible things that have happened to Israel over the years. And so when we read Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. The chastisement we deserved fell on him. They turned him into Israel, the nation, instead of a person. Because it's so obviously talking about a divine suffering servant Messiah. So obviously talking about Jesus. That instead of just running with it and putting their faith in Jesus, they start reinterpreting the scriptures. and many false religions today do the same the jehovah witnesses have their own version of the bible that twist the wording and interpretation of the greek to make it look like jesus is just a man in fact they say he was actually an angel he was michael the archangel mormons say he was the older spirit brother of lucifer and He was so good that he became a God. And if you're really good too, you can become a God. Islam says Jesus was a prophet of Allah. But you go to the Dome of the Rock and in big Arabic letters it says Jesus is not the Son of God and cursed be anyone who teaches or believes that. So you've got well-meaning Christians who somehow are trying to lump everyone who believes in God into the salvific mix. But if you don't believe Jesus is God, you cannot be saved. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you cannot be saved. Denying the deity of Christ has disastrous consequences. Disastrous Consequences in the immediate, look what happened to the scribes. I am trying, there we go. Look what happened to the scribes. People who were supposed to uphold God, pointing people away from God. Beware of the scribes, Jesus said, who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. So there's disastrous consequences now, not maybe for the scribes now. Everything's great for them, but look what's happening to the rest of society. These are the example people want to follow. These are the great people in our society. We should be like the scribes. We should parade ourselves around and toot our own horns and draw attention to ourselves and live as legalists. These will receive greater condemnation. Why? We often mistakenly teach that all sins are the same. Severity. The Bible doesn't teach this. Yes, if you've broken one sin, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. But there are Sins that are worse than others. And James says not many should teach. And Jesus says these will receive greater condemnation because they were supposed to be pointing people to God and you pointed people away from God. Pointed people away from God. Some of these scribes may have lived very righteous-looking lives. But if you're pointing people away from God, if you're the people who are supposed to teach the Scriptures and point people to God, and you're pointing people away from the deity of Christ, you will receive a greater condemnation. Because Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I don't know how you could be any more clear. As we close this morning, I want you to think about, first of all, whether or not you truly believe that Jesus is God. This is a non-negotiable. This is where our faith starts and ends. Jesus is the Son of God. Only God himself can take the wrath of God. Only God himself can live a perfect life. He's not just some really good version of humanity. Yes, Jesus is fully man, but he is fully God as well. But for those of us who affirm that and believe it, I need us to look at our lives this week, examine your lives, and look and see where the gifts God has given you, where you may be tempted to exalt yourself in those gifts. To exalt yourself instead of recognizing whatever I have comes from God to be used for his glory. I also want you to examine your lives and see where, because you're living a righteous life, that sometimes we're tempted, as Ross said, to start thinking we don't need God's grace in our life. And then it's hard to extend grace to others. Man, if they just get their act together like me, they wouldn't need so much grace. Well, that's not what grace is. God's amazing grace is amazing because we didn't earn it. We, We desperately need it daily. So these are the questions I'd like you to ask yourself this week. Father God, thank you so much that you would humble yourself and become a man and yet not reject your divinity. We don't understand how you can be God and man simultaneously, but it's what you taught, what you teach, what is truth. It is the foundation of our faith. We understand in part that is the only way that you can be our representative, but at the same time live a perfect life. But the math just doesn't add up for us, God. There are things too wonderful for us to fully comprehend. And so we trust you by faith. You are God, Jesus Christ. You are our God. We affirm with Scripture, my Lord and my God. Forgive us for acting like our own gods at times. May we repent bow the knee to you, and humbly follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.